Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our College Heights Christian Education Podcast on how to study the Bible. You got Cy Huffer here, your host and presider, here with Mark Scott. Hey, good to greet you again, everyone. So we are going to use words today <laughs> to talk about words. I mean, really, if you think about it, words are the building blocks of our thoughts, of our sentences that we put together. We use words as the building blocks to do that, and they really matter when interpreting the Bible. Mark, it always seemed weird to me that people can be critical of words, but they use words to criticize words. That's a bit upside down, don't you think? Yeah, I don't think people think about it when they say things like that, like, you know, uh, your, your, your actions are speaking so loud I can't hear what you're saying. Yeah. And we know what they mean. We want people to walk their talk. We want to, them to live their life without hypocrisy. And yet, man, words matter. Yeah. I mean, they really do. People fall in love uh, due to words. Nations go to war uh, due to words. In fact, we kind of had a real classic example of this once on Christmas Day really? at our home years ago. So How I, so? Well, uh, Miss Carla had desired to invite an international student for Christmas dinner, and some of the Ozark kids were already gone. So she called out at Missouri Southern and asked if they had any foreign students that needed Christmas dinner. And they said, oh, that'd be great. And they hooked us up with a guy from Tokyo hmm. uh, that was to come to our house for dinner. Well, he called a couple days before Christmas and said his girlfriend from Texas Tech University was coming up. Could she come too? And of course, Miss Carla said that'd be fine. So here they come, lovely young couple, uh, college age, dating uh, to our home for Christmas dinner. And uh, anyway, got in the house, and as the ladies were kind of getting the meal ready, I was talking with this young man in the living room, and I had read an article about the Japanese word, and so I, I, I don't know Japanese, so I'll do the best I can. I'll probably butcher this. But it's the word makusatsu, if I, I think I'm saying that right. And a very interesting article that goes back in our World War II history. After the United States dropped the first atomic bomb on Japan, uh, the Japanese governor, government used the word with our government in the United States, and the word was makusatsu. The problem with that word is it's capable of two meanings. It can mean to refrain from comment, or it can mean to ignore. Hmm. Those are kind of different. And essentially, this article suggested that the Japanese government meant it, refrain from comment, give us more time. You obviously have the upper hand. You have the bomb. We got to figure out what to do. But some suggested that people on our end here in the United States, understood it, ignore. Hmm. It was like, what? You're going to ignore this? And so, as you know from history, just a matter of days later, we dropped a second bomb, this time not on Hiroshima, but on Nagasaki. All because maybe one word got misunderstood. So I asked this young man from Japan, I said, hey, I told him about the article. I said, I'm going to say the word, you tell me if it's right. And I was close, anyway, makusatsu. And he said, actually, that's true. He said, that word is capable of two meanings. He said, the etymology of it, and that just means the history of the word, originally meant to sit. To sit. Huh. Well, if you sit, you're refraining from something, like standing and working. Or to sit, you're just you're, you're, you're passive, you're not active. So he says, that is in the etymology of this word. And I asked him what he thought about the article I was referring to. He said, well, he said, I don't know about the article, but he says it's kind of hard to argue with history. Hmm. All because of one word. One word, maybe a second bomb was dropped. That is fascinating. I was, I was, I was thinking of the word 
you know, so often we use the word hand in so yeah. many different yeah, ways. Yeah, that's I mean, It's not one. nearly as historically, you know, meaningful as, as makusatsu, but, but true. it can mean a lot of things. Yes, it's part it of the human body. It can mean the hand of a clock, a hand of cards, a measurement for horses. This horse yeah. is 15 hands tall. Yeah, 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 an simple. expression on board or, or a ship. Even the word trunk is the same way. Yeah. The trunk of a tree is different yeah. than the trunk of a car than the trunk of an elephant. So we're considering principles that help us interpret the Bible. Can you list what some of those might be for words, the yeah. impact that words have in interpretation? Well, I'll try. And this might be a good point for people to kind of jot down some of these principles, Cy, because I think they really do matter. In fact, I'd argue that we actually use them without having labeling them. Mm. But by labeling them, especially with our Bible study, it'll help us to be a better reader, I think. Number one is usage determines the meaning of words. It's not dictionaries. It's not even people, even though we all know that when we say various words, it either lights people up or sets them on fire. Yeah. One of the two. But usage is what determines the meanings of words. And that's why a good Bible concordance is a good book to have in every home or on your Bible software or something. Usage determines the meanings of words. Here's the second one. Well, and why Bible yeah. concordance, Mark? Why is that Yeah. Important? Well, uh, because the, the concordance, unlike a dictionary that will just give you a definition, the concordance shows you the use. And so this first principle is usage determines that. You can start seeing the nuance of a word, the range of a word, by just paying attention to how it's used. And the concordance, a complete concordance, an exhaustive concordance, will help you notice all those and nuances. That, the one I have on my shelf is strong, yep. exhaustive concordance. Yep. takes a word and just lists how yep. that word is used all throughout yep. the rest of the Bible. And when you consider that those were uh, first done back in the medieval ages when they had no computers, somebody was just reading their Bible over and over and over again, and we're grateful. Yes. A, a second principle we, is this, that words do have a range of meaning, mm. kind of like what we were just saying. A concordance helps you discover that a little bit, but take the word world, for instance, sign. Mm. You would know from your Greek studies that two different Greek words translate that word. The most common is the word cosmos, sometimes pronounced co cosmos or something like that. But, but actually, in the Bible, the word world can mean three things. It has a range to it. For instance, uh, when Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, we brought nothing into the world, and we're going to take nothing out of it. I mean, it's talking about the planet, when we were born on this planet. This, as Philip Yancey calls it, the stained planet. But then in 1 John 2, it says, don't love the things of the world. Hmm. Well, there it means evil influences mm -hmm. or the pagan influences. And then, of course, the most famous, John 3.16, that God so loved the world. Hmm. Well, I have no doubt that he loved his creation, but it's probably talking about people. So world can mean planet, it can mean pagan influences, or it can mean people. And that's the advantage of discovering a range of a word. A third principle would be this. Words travel. <laughs> they really, really do. Time, geography, culture... They may not always mean in one setting what they mean in another setting. Take the word mystery in the yeah. Bible. I mean, when we hear that, we think mysterious. Yeah. Really, in the Bible, it means more like, you know, a revealed secret. Mm -hmm. Words will usually mean what they were meant at the time of their primary usage. But be careful of thinking that a word means the sum total of that word's history. Mm. Now, that's a little involved, but really, how the word is being used at a particular time is what we're after. Yeah. What does it mean there, at that time, in that place? Mm -hmm. In the case of the Bible, in the ancient world, I guess you'd say. A fourth uh, principle might be this. Don't take for granted the meanings of religious words. Now, we use these at church all the time, mm. and you don't have to be in the Lord very long until you're using Bible words in your vocabulary, in your conversation with people. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But sometimes 
these very familiar church words kind of need definition. Mm -hmm. We use them so much, we don't know what they mean. For instance, the word grace. Wow. I mean, you know, that's a big word. It's, it's talked about in church a lot. But depending on the verse you're in, it can mean different things. In Ephesians 2.8, we're saved by grace. So there it just means God's love for us expressed in Christ that we don't deserve. But over in chapter 4, verse 7 of Ephesians, it'll say, uh, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Well, that's talking about equipping grace, hmm. spiritual gifts, mm -hmm. like we all have gifts. And then, like in 2 Corinthians 12, God says to Paul about his prayer request of the thorn in the flesh, my grace is sufficient for you. Well, that's not talking about saving grace. It's talking about, not talking about spiritual gifts. It's talking about God's willingness to sustain us in his grace. Mm -hmm. We might call it energizing grace mm -hmm. to get us through hard times. So you don't want to assume this the meaning of religious words. Sometimes a religious word needs to find, even though you use a lot. Oh, yeah, and as you become more and more involved and engaged in Christianity and in your faith, right. you, there is a whole language there that you're learning. It's a new language, yeah. and there's words like faith and worship and even holy. I never knew what holy meant yeah. for years yeah. until finally someone asked me what it meant, and I couldn't answer it. And so I had to go back and learn what it meant, that it meant yeah. to be set apart. It's different than the yeah. common thing. I think anybody understands that you have to define big words. And yeah. in the Bible, like justification or yeah. propitiation or redemption, you know, we would all say, oh, yeah, I got to look that up. But some of the simpler words like love yeah. yep. or grace or faith or, as you said, holy, holiness, yeah, for sure. We need to, we need to look those up. Well, let me give you a few more. Uh, number five. Uh, words can overlap. Now the scholars talk about that like semantic domain. Just think about it like circles that overlap. Mm. Because really, and we were just mentioning a few of these words, what I call them the big T-I-O-N words. Mm -hmm. They all end with T-I-O-N. But the, the salvation words in the Bible, redemption, propitiation, uh, justification, sanctification, they do mean different things. They're not all just synonyms. And yet, boy, oh boy, do they overlap. Yes. And, and like circles that just they're touch mm -hmm. each other or at least overlap. So words can overlap. That's just the nature of them. Really, you mentioned the word holy, Sai. The word righteous mm -hmm. or righteousness. Boy, that's a kiss and cousin of the word holy. Yeah. Uh, it's difficult to separate those. Yeah. Uh, a sixth one would be that literal meanings should be preferred over figurative meanings. But figurative uses find their significance in the literal. Now, that's a little involved. But the point is, you know, we use figurative language all the time. We use literal language all the time. Yeah. Sometimes it's difficult to separate them a little bit. But the figurative use of a word always has its root or basis in the literal. Mm -hmm. And I suppose we should always prefer the literal unless the context, we're back to that principle, sure. shows that we should understand it figuratively. Like, for instance, when Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Well, first of all, it's a play on words because Peter's name means rock. But Peter's not a rock. He's a human. He's a human being. But Jesus said, you're rocky. And upon this rock, I will build my church. So he's drawing attention to his name. In one sense, it's literal. Peter's name, rock. But the other thing is, he's saying, no, upon this rock, maybe it means the statement that Peter just made or something like that. I will build my church, the confession of faith that he made. Which so makes he, us to be aware of the author's intent yeah, with the use of the word. Because never, sometimes the author wants it to be figurative. 
And so exactly. to read it literal would be the wrong thing exactly, to do. Exactly, exactly. I've been working on First Peter chapter 5 lately, and it says, She who is in Babylon greets you. So when was Simon Peter ever in the city of Babylon, you know? Or is Babylon a figure of speech? Hmm. Does it mean something else? Well, one more, a couple more here, and that is clear words should be used to interpret the obscure ones. Uh, you know, there's a lot in the Bible that, that can be obscure to us because we're separated by what some scholars call hermeneutical distance, miles of ocean, culture, language, things like that. So some words will be obscure to us, uh, but we should use the clear ones to help interpret them. I'll give you an example. In Jesus, what we call the Olivet Discourse, or when he's on the Mount of Olives giving a sermon, uh, he says, uh, the abomination of desolation. Well, that's a mouthful. What in the world does that mean? But here's where a parallel passage helps us, and that is uh, Luke 21, 20 says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Hmm. So, so whatever the abomination of desolation is, maybe a Jewish person might understand that, but somebody that's a Gentile far, far away in a whole other world might say, well, what does that mean? Well, it evidently means when Jerusalem gets surrounded by armies. So clear words can interpret the obscure. One more, and that's number eight. Be careful of thinking that a transliteration is a translation. Now, last time, or a few lessons back, I guess I should say more accurately, we talked about the difference between transliteration mm -hmm. and translation and paraphrase. What we mean by this is sometimes... Uh, words in the biblical languages are just kind of what I'll call slopped into English. Like the word baptizo, from which the English word baptism comes. A transliteration of it is baptism. Mm -hmm. But the translation of the word means to immerse or plunge or dip. So you don't want to assume that just because you have put it into one language like English letter for letter that you really are understanding that term. That's not the definition. So it's pretty involved. It's a pretty, big, it's yeah. a pretty big list. I mean, eight different things and ways in which to just understand how words work. You got a few others? Yeah, let me, let me add to the list. Instead of eight, let me give 10. Number nine, the smaller transition words really matter. And we've mentioned this before when we talked about context. But words like thus and so that and for and therefore, they, they, they make a difference yeah. in how you read. And then finally, watch for idioms, specialized uses of words. Yes. Some of them are kind of funny to us. Like in the Bible, it talks about Mary being pregnant with Jesus. Literally, it says having in the belly, having in the belly. Well, that's what be so odd. We have odd expressions in English. Sure. You know, we say, hey, don't pull my leg. Yeah. Well, we mean that figuratively. We mean, you know, don't lie to me. Don't fun with me. We don't mean it literally. And so anyway, those are 10. Probably I should stop there. So th th that is a lot of different yeah. ways that we have to look at, you know, make sure we are watching the way words are being used in, in Scripture. And the reason why it is so involved is because this of the hermeneutical distance you mentioned. Yes. This book was written so long ago in such different cultures, such different worldviews and, and, and values that it is languages. We have to kind of do some work to understand what the author was trying to, what, what they were trying to say when they wrote these uh, books down originally. So how do we figure this out? I yeah. mean, you're not always going to be with me when I'm reading my Bible by <laughs> yeah. myself. Yeah. So what are, are, there, are there some tools that can help us understand how words are being used? Well, one of the great things about uh, living today, 
And I, you always got to be careful about this, Cy. We don't want to say, oh, it's harder to be a Christian today than any time in the church's history. Or it's easier today to be a Christian. Than, those kind of statements are made by dumb historians or uninformed historians. So I want to be careful here. But boy, oh boy, we do have some advantages of living today. And one of them is we have so many tools. Yeah. We have so many tools. I mean, our people are probably listening to these podcasts on their phone or their devices yeah. of some kind. And on those phones and devices, we can load up Bible software that helps us with this thing. Yeah. You can take your cursor and hover over a word of Bible software and down at the bottom or someplace, it'll tell you what the word means in its original language. So we have so much available to, in terms of Bible apps and Bible software today. But I guess if you were to press me, I would mention that every Christian home should have at least three tools in them. And again, some of these are available through software programs. But a good Bible dictionary or a good Bible encyclopedia just to look up words. I mean, it's one thing to look up the word baptism in Webster's Dictionary. It's another thing to look it up in a Bible dictionary right. or a Bible encyclopedia. You, you need the biblical understanding of that term. So there's a lot of good ones. I'm not going to give anybody free press, I guess, by opting for one in particular. But Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias, very, very helpful. And just if somebody had those on the shelf at home or could go to their software, it'd be great. Another one we mentioned earlier, that's a concordance. The concordance kind of keeps you honest. You know, it lets you do your own work. It's more work in some ways. But uh, if you look up a word in a Bible dictionary, you're pretty much accepting the definition that that person that wrote that dictionary article uh, is giving. With the concordance, you can do your own. You can say, how's that word being used here? How's that word being here used here? Is it the same? Is it different? Why would I think it's different? So those are the tougher questions, but that's what we call more of an inductive method yeah. of Bible study, kind of letting the facts declare the truths as opposed to the other way around. One tool that, that you would know that I like that's just so helpful uh, that was made available just few, some years back is the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. Yes. It's just a one-volume book, but I don't think there's very many sermons I prepare that I don't turn to that book hmm. and lessons because um, it just is helpful. It not only defines the word, but it also and gives you somewhat of its range like a concordance, but it will unpack the imagery behind that word. Mm -hmm. And since our Bible comes to us with not just physical knowledge, but also spiritual knowledge. It's probably important for us to get our arms around, uh, is this image anything like the seven spirits? Yeah. Well, what's the seven spirits? And why is our enemy called a dragon mm -hmm. and uh, a lion, yeah. a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour? You kind of have to get your arms around some of that with an imagery book. And I found the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery very helpful. One online resource I've used before um, is the Blue Letter Bible. Yeah. that's yeah. If you just search that in Google, uh, Blue Letter Bible, it's a great resource that helps you with words and meanings in the original language. Mark, we don't have much more time, but words aren't typically just used by themselves. Right. They're used, like you said, they're woven together in our last session, um, into a context, into a sentence, into a paragraph. So as I think about words, are there any pieces of advice about that you would give us on how to interpret words as they are used in sentences? Well, yeah, there are. And let me give just, for the sake of simplicity and time, four. This can get very sticky. This can, Because, you know, most of us uh, remember the days of elementary school and learning how to line diagram. No. And probably if I just say that phrase, some will want to throw up listening to this. But there are a few things, grammatically, syntax, words in sentences that will help us. Number one, uh, 
Try to discern the difference between an indicative statement and an imperative. I just mean a command is different than a flat statement. And uh, boy, the reason why this matters is because, you know, we want to read our Bibles and do like they did in Bible days. The problem is, if you don't read making a distinction between a commandment and just the indicative statement, you might switch switch those. Yeah. And, uh, you know, many of the Old Testament patriarchs had more than one wife. Yeah. You know, that's not meaning that the Bible is for that. It's just recording it accurately that, in fact, they did. Yeah. That's an indicative statement, as opposed to an imperative, uh, such as believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household, and you will be saved. So distinguish between a command and just a statement. And another way I think about that is um, indicative statements are a lot more descriptive. They're describing what happened. Commands are a lot more prescriptive. That's right. This is what you are supposed to do. That's a good way to say it. It is. Well, here's a second one. Try to determine what a question means by the answer it receives. Hmm. Um, you know, when the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 said after the earthquake, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Well, I mean, there's just been an earthquake for heaven's sakes. Maybe he just wants to know how he can get out of this rubble and how he can, you know, not die. But Paul and Silas, maybe they redirected the conversation, but I think they might be just answering the question as he meant it. Well, you need to believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. So, Pay attention to the question. It might be the clue to what the the, uh, the answer, I should say. Pay attention to the answer because it might be the clue to what the question means. Uh, third thing, and I know that some won't like this, but one way you can get your arms around is to diagram the passage. Good old line diagramming. It actually can help. And some people actually that are English majors and whatever, they kind of like this. I remember my final exam in English grammar class years ago at the Bible college was to diagram, line diagram, um, uh, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 in the old American Standard Version. Oh man, it was killer. We had three hours to do it and you needed every bit of that to do it. But the basic subject in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 was God and the predicate was hath spoken. Hmm. But the phrases went everywhere and the clauses went everywhere. It was, But you know, that's a powerful thought when you realize and you can isolate that idea from four verses. God hath spoken. It was worth line diagramming to just find your way to that terrific truth that God has spoken. Hmm. He did it a lot of ways. He did it through various means. He did it, but God has spoken. Well, one more, and that is to pay attention to parallel thoughts. You might have different words in different places, but they're parallel. They're hmm. parallel. And it's just different ways of saying the same thing. So that's a little bit on grammar, kind of hooked to the idea of the importance of interpreting things by their words. Sure. And, words. And, and, you know, honestly, Mark, in my whole education, I've never diagrammed a sentence before. <laughs> I don't know how that's happened. You dodged a bullet. I dodged. But one thing I have done is I have just written out yes. the passage. If you are just studying a passage, mm-hmm. read it, mm-hmm. speak it out loud, and then just write it out by hand. So helpful. Those the, three things would help you so much in understanding yes. the use of words in sentences. The, the scholars call that a mechanical display or a syntactical display where you rewrite the text with a series of indentations to just try to get your arms around what it's primarily saying. That's right. So everything out to the far left margin is the main idea yeah. of the passage. Yeah. Well, it that, is helpful. That's plenty to chew on on our session here today on words on how to study the bible thanks for being with us and we will see you next time here with me and mark on this podcast on how to study scripture together we'll see you next time have a good one